Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 16. This chapter is generally considered the conclusion of the farewell discourse. In this discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he will no longer be physically with them. At the end of chapter 15, Jesus began talking in specific detail about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said in 15, 26 to 27, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus says that a helper will come. He uses the Greek word parakletos, which literally means one appointed to come alongside. The Holy Spirit is appointed. That is, he is sent by Jesus from the Father to come alongside the church to come alongside the people of Christ and to help them. Specifically, we are told he will help them to bear witness about Jesus. That's what we're told in chapter 15. And now Jesus adds to that teaching in chapter 16. It is sometimes said that if we wish to become theologians of the Holy Spirit, then we are best to begin our studies right here in John 16. If we get our moorings here, then we are far less likely to be blown off track later under every new wind of doctrine. And I think that is true. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Here and in the high priestly prayer of chapter 17, we learn that Jesus is very concerned about the level of opposition that his disciples will face in the world after his departure from it. Jesus could protect himself, obviously. We, we love reading those stories about how everyone wanted to throw him off a cliff or everyone was picking up stones to throw at him, but he, he walked through the midst of them or he escaped through their fingers because his time had not yet come. Nobody did anything to Jesus that he didn't want them to do. And when he was here on the earth, physically, that protection extended to the disciples. So when he went away, naturally, the disciples might feel abandoned. They might feel nervous and vulnerable. They might feel as if they've been thrown to the wolves. They will be attacked and kicked out of the synagogues. They will be arrested and beaten and killed. Indeed, Jesus says that people will kill them and think they're offering service to God. Certainly, that could be overwhelming. That might be terrifying. And, and so here, and then again in John 17, Jesus speaks about what he will do in order to continue to safeguard and watch over his church. Verse 4, but I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the first thing Jesus has done here to protect his disciples, to protect the church, is to predict the persecution that is coming. So that when it happened, the disciples would know that Jesus saw this coming. They, they, they weren't to think that, that this persecution proves that Jesus was wrong or, or that it proves that they've been barking up the wrong tree the whole time. They must understand that these things have been foreseen. They are necessary. They must understand that they will go home to glory in the same way that Jesus has gone home to glory, through the valley of shame, persecution, and death. Second thing he says is that another helper will come to take Jesus' place with the disciples. When Jesus goes, the Holy Spirit will come. They will never be alone in their battle with the world. In fact, Jesus says it will be better for them when Jesus is in heaven and the Holy Spirit is down here with the church. And of course, we wonder how in the world that could be. We wonder, how does that even make sense? How could it be better in any sense for Jesus not to be physically present? Matthew Henry suggests that it has to do, of course, with the limitations of the incarnation. He says his, speaking of Jesus, his corporal presence could be but in one place at a time. But his spirit is everywhere, in all places, at all times. So, to state the obvious, as the church grows and spreads throughout the world, this is better. The spirit can be everywhere, defending and protecting and empowering and encouraging. He can be helping the church in Ghana at the same time he's helping the church in Georgia, Thanks be to God. In verse 8, Jesus begins to speak specifically about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, and when he comes. Now, let's just pause there and, and notice two things. First of all, let's notice that the text says, when he comes. That might not seem like a terribly significant detail, but I think it is. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. The word for spirit in Greek is neuter, and so you would expect neuter pronouns, but in the farewell discourse, Jesus actually breaks grammatical convention several times by using masculine pronouns to refer to the spirit, the intention being to stress his personhood. Now, secondly, notice that Jesus is speaking in a future sense. He says, when he comes, there's a sense in which of course, the Spirit is everywhere, and there is a sense, of course, in which he has already played a very prominent role in the story of the Bible. We think of all those times in the Old Testament. I, th I think, for example, of the stories of the judges where it says, you know, the Spirit came on them. And, and we think of David saying, take not your spirit from me. So, of course, the Spirit has already played a, a crucial role in the story of the Bible. And yet, Jesus is speaking in a future sense here. There is a future, special, 
different, amplified coming that is still ahead as of John 16. Obviously, Jesus is referring here to the day of Pentecost, which is described in Acts 2. And therefore, we want to look and notice if what Jesus says here about the Holy Spirit's future coming is consistent with what actually did happen there in Acts chapter 2 in that story. And of course, we will see that it was. Let's go back to verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's first ask then whether the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost convicted the world of sin because they did not believe in Jesus. Right? That's one of the things Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. Now, we certainly notice something very much like that at the conclusion of Peter's sermon, the first sermon preached by a disciple in the church under this new power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, verse 37 says, Now, when they had heard this, when they had heard this sermon preached under the power of the Holy Spirit about Jesus, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So Peter preaches to Jews in Jerusalem just several weeks after Jews in Jerusalem were howling for the blood of Jesus. This time, however, we are told that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they asked the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? Sounds very much like the Holy Spirit has begun to do what Jesus said he would do. We are also told that he will convict the world of righteousness and judgment. What does that mean? The term convict here carries the sense of shame. Jesus seems to be saying that the Holy Spirit will cause the world to be ashamed of its righteousness and judgment. He will show them how wrong they have been in their moral, personal, spiritual, and political discernment. He will cause them to see their waywardness, no doubt, in, in part at least, by observing the attractive counterculture of the church. The church will be helped to provide a compelling contrast. Again, we see the folly of attempting to mirror the world. You know, in the last 30 years or so, it seems that the church has been obsessed with mirroring the world. We want to speak like they speak. We want to sing like they sing. We want to think like they think. We want to narrow the gap as much as possible. But the job of the church is not to mirror the world. It is to convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. Our judgment must be spirit judgment. And our righteousness must be spirit righteousness for us to be used as an attractive counter-proposal. This is what the Spirit is doing in the world. Now, the focus turns more to what the Spirit is doing among the disciples in the following verses. Verse 12, for example, says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus says the Spirit will complete the teaching of Jesus to the disciples because, in some sense, the disciples 
simply have not been able to learn and understand all of what Jesus has been teaching them, and they won't be able really to put all this together until after the cross and the empty tomb. That's why Jesus says on this night, I've got more to say, but now's not the time. In in his devotional commentary, D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, even this late in their discipleship, they cannot quite integrate in their own minds the notion of a king messiah and the notion of a suffering messiah. Until that point is firmly nailed down, the way they read the scriptures will be so skewed by political and royal aspirations that they are not able to get it right. Close quote. I think that's exactly right. And and so Jesus, in a sense, has front-loaded the experience of the cross and the empty tomb. But a lot of that content is still sitting in a file, as it were, in their brains, marked confusing stuff Jesus said. And, and, And it's going to stay in that file until after they see him on the cross, until after they see the empty tomb. And and then, when they're given the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to open that file of confusing stuff said by Jesus and begin explaining all of that through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, to state the obvious, this is something Jesus says to the disciples, not something that he says to you and me. Now, that isn't to say that it isn't for you and me. It wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't for you and me. But of course, Jesus said many things to the disciples that are not in the Bible. I'm I'm sure at some point Jesus said to Peter, hey, Peter, would you go over there and get me a sandwich? Now, that was said to the disciples, but because it has no relevance for us, it's not in the Bible. The stuff that is in the Bible is stuff that is said to the disciples, but that is for the benefit of the church. Okay, so I'm, I'm not saying that it's not for us. Of course, it's for us. My point is that to understand the meaning of, the, of, of this statement, you have to understand that it was said to the disciples. Okay, look at, and, and many things in this chapter have to be understood that way. Look, look at verse five. This is obviously to the disciples. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you, there the you is obviously the disciples. None of you asks me, where are you going? Or, or verse six. But because I have said these things to you, again, to the disciples, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, of course, sorrow hasn't filled our hearts because we know the end of the story. We're actually quite happy about how all this worked out. But but they were sorrowful. This is something Jesus was saying to them. And, and, and the same is true if you look at verse 12 and if you look at verse 16. This is stuff Jesus said to the disciples. He is saying that the Holy Spirit will come and help them recall everything Jesus said and taught. That was how Jesus introduced this whole teaching about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. He said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here's what Jesus is saying throughout this, this thread of teaching. He is saying that the Holy Spirit will give the disciples supernatural recall and 
he will flesh out the implications of everything Jesus ever said in his earthly life that they didn't understand. Okay, that is a promise given to the disciples. But obviously, it is for the entire church in the sense that it gives all of us confidence in the apostolic gospel. This is our assurance that the apostles Paul and Peter and John weren't just simply pulling this stuff out of the air. They were being helped by the Holy Spirit to recall and to explain who Jesus was and what he had done for our salvation. Thanks be to God. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me again. A little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were asking, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here again, Jesus is speaking primarily about his death and resurrection. He will die and be put in the tomb and they won't see him and they will be sad. But then after a little while, they will see him and their sorrow will quickly turn to joy. That is the primary meaning. But I think, and, and, and I think many scholars also see here, a likely secondary meaning. Like the disciples, you know, we are waiting. This is a meaning for the, for the church broadly. Like, like the disciples, we're waiting. Like the disciples, when we see Jesus, our sorrow will turn to joy. And I, I think we're on very safe ground thinking that this, in a secondary sense, refers to the return of Christ. But, but what about that odd phrase at the end? When they see Jesus, they won't ask him for anything. What does that mean? Well, given what comes next about prayer in Jesus' name, what Jesus seems to be saying here is that while he was with them physically, they just asked him for things. But then after the resurrection and his ascension, they will ask the Father for things in his name through believing prayer and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So again, I think this is a teaching about the power of believing prayer with Christ our intercessor in the heavens. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father in your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, 
Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples think they have understood But as we noted already, until they have seen Christ on the cross and until they have seen the empty tomb, they cannot understand. But when they do see that and when they are helped by the Holy Spirit, they will understand and they will be ready. They will be ready to face the foe. They will be ready to engage the mission because they will know who Jesus is. And they will know what he has accomplished. They will understand finally what he said, what he meant, and what he did. And knowing that, they too will overcome the world. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.